every faithful Christian wants to be able to talk about their faith. We all want to be able to talk about Jesus and share the story of Jesus with the people in our lives who really need Him. But y'all, sometimes it's hard, ain't it? I mean, it's really, really hard, and we feel like we just don't have any idea how to tell the story of Jesus. Well, if that's you, and that's most of us, but if that's you, then I want to invite you to be back here at 6 o'clock tonight during our worship service and prayer meeting because I'm going to introduce to you a way to share the story of Jesus that is comfortable and that is natural and that is faithful to the way Jesus himself told his story. So be here tonight at 6 o'clock, and it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm more excited about that than I think anything I've ever preached in my entire ministry. So I do want you to be here tonight at 6 o'clock. But this morning, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to begin in chapter number 1 and verse number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And verse number one, we're going to begin a series of messages today, working through the book of Corinthians verse by verse on Sunday mornings. The book of Corinthians is 16 chapters long, and so this is going to take us a while to get through this, probably uh, at least through the end of November or thereabouts. So we're going to be stuck with these Corinthians until Christmas, okay? And since we are going to be taking a worm's eye view approach to this book, And we're going to be looking at all of it in detail. I want to take just a second and give you the bird's eye view of the book so that you kind of have an idea of what's happening. And and in short, the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a local church where he addresses their problems, their frustrations, their challenges, their confusions. And he answers quite a number of questions that they have reached out to him trying to get some help. All throughout the book, though, Paul is setting before this church the gospel of Jesus Christ that has called them into being. And he's reminding them that in the end, it's all about Jesus and it's all about Christ crucified and resurrected. And so since today we're going to be talking about church and since we are in church, I thought I would kind of get started just by taking a brief congregational poll. And so this is not official and this is not very scientific, but I just want to ask you some questions about church. So if, if, if these are true for you, would you raise your hand as I work through them? We'll do a simple one first. How many of you have ever been baptized? All right, very good. How many of you all ever been baptized more than once? How many of you have ever almost drowned a little boy when you were baptizing him? Just me, huh? Has anybody ever dumped the tray of grape juice at communion? Anybody ever done? Okay, we've got a couple takers. Yes. How many of you have ever faked either a coughing fit or a praise break because you forgot the words to the song you were singing? How many of you ever just told a lie? Yeah. How many of you have ever volunteered in the nursery and left in an ambulance? That was actually Amy. And she's volunteering with the kids today. So we probably need to send somebody, <laughs> send somebody back to check, to check on her. The truth is, though, uh, if, if you've been connected to any church for any amount of time, you know 
that church life can be a lot of fun, but church life can also be kind of wild sometimes, can't it? Churches have highs and lows. Churches has, have ups and downs. Churches sometimes can be very, very messy. And there is no church probably in history, at least no church in Scripture certainly, that's ever been messier than the church of Corinth. And the Apostle Paul is going to labor through this verse, or through these verses, through this, cha- through this book, to deal with the mess, to call them out on their mess in the church. And it's a good place for us as a church body to look and see what it is that God expects us to deal with as a church, how He expects us to think, how He expects us to function, what He expects us to look like as He calls us out from these verses of Scripture. And as He begins in these first verses, maybe the most important verses in the entire book, they set the framework for everything Paul's going to say, and he makes one simple point. And that's all I'm going to do today. I'm going to give you just one point in my sermon today. And it's this point that I pray you understand. I pray you all believe. And I pray that our church embraces with every fiber of our being. And that point is that the church is a place for saints and sinners. The church is a place for saints and sinners. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 today. The Bible begins with the name of the author, Paul. Paul, called by the will of God... To be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours. Let me just stop right there and tell you that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 2 indicates that this book is just as much for us as it is for them. This book is designed for everybody who calls out to Jesus. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. So the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter. And it's important that you understand that this book is a letter, but... Letters are kind of a hard thing to talk about today because some of our generation Zers that are here, you've never written a letter. You've never received a letter. You don't have any idea what a letter is. But a letter is an ancient form of communication that preceded the text message. And so what we would do back in the olden days is if we had something to tell somebody, we would sit down in front of our caves by firelight. We would take out a piece of stone and with our hammer and chisel, we would hammer out what we wanted to say and then we would send it to them. And that's sort of what Paul's doing here in the book of 1 Corinthians. But it's important that you see this book as a letter because it's structured just like an ancient letter would be structured. And you have to really see this to understand what Paul's accomplishing in this book. Well, today, if we write a letter, we begin with, Dear so-and-so, we write the body of the letter, and we conclude with, sincerely, what's her name? But in Paul's day, they did it kind of backwards. And so Paul begins by introducing himself. He introduces the author of the letter, which is how they would have done it back then. 
He makes a few comments about his audience, the church of Corinth. He makes a few remarks about them. Then beginning in verse 10, which we'll look at next week, which is going to be a ton of fun, Paul begins to deal with the issue at hand in this lengthy letter that he writes. So you start with the author, you move to the audience, then you move into the content of the letter, and you end up with a few nice words, grace and peace, and all that kind of thing. So who's the author of the book? Well, Paul. I mean, that's hanging right there at the front door, right? Paul, if there's ever been anybody who was both a saint and a sinner, it is the Apostle Paul. Now, this man was a saint of God. I mean, my goodness, he has churches named after him, right? St. Paul's Cathedral. This is a man who's known for his impressive theological mind that lent so much vocabulary to the church. He's known for his missions journeys. He wrote a big chunk of the Bible. This is a saintly man. But we should recognize today that before the Apostle Paul was a saint, the Apostle Paul was very much a sinner. He was a man who said about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he was the chief of sinners. He said, the only thing I was ever good at was sinning, and I was the best one that ever played the game. But listen, the Apostle Paul, he didn't just dabble in sin like we do in Alabama. He didn't like to just smoke a little pot and drink some Miller Lights on the weekends with his buddies. The Apostle Paul, he liked the hard stuff. And the Apostle Paul was given over to his self-righteousness. He was given over to his pride. He was given over to his religious way of looking at God and looking at life that allowed him to feel superior to everybody else and then do violence to those who disagreed. The Apostle Paul was a crooked and a wicked man, but all of that perversity and all of that depravity was masked in a very religious package. But he says right here that the sinner became a saint because one day the story of the sinner was interrupted by the will of God. Do you see that phrase there in verse number 1? Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. If you know your Bible, you probably know the story that in Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul was on the way to the city of Damascus to persecute the church. And the will of God wrecked his life and rebuilt him by grace. The will of God superseded and overrided his will for his future. And God wrote the Apostle Paul an entirely new story. And I'm glad today that grace does that for sinners like us. That the will of God comes into our life. And for all the plans we have. And for all the ambitions we have. And for all the expectations we might have about what the future will be. God comes and he says, here's my will. Here's what the future will be because of my grace and power. But it is worth thinking about today. That probably for all of our lives, there are two wills competing. There's our will. And there's God's will. It might do you good to ask today, who really is charting the future? Who really is writing the story? Who really is drawing the map and charting the trajectory of my life? Is it me? Or is it the God who saves? Well, Paul is called by the will of God to be an apostle. And the will of God for Paul the apostle took him in Acts chapter number 18 to spend 18 months in the ancient city of Corinth. Corinth was the sin city of the ancient world. Now, it was an important city. 
It was a large city. In Paul's day, they had a population of about 700,000 people. And this is 2,000 years before cities like London ever reached a population of a million. This was a massive city for the ancient world. It sat at an important crossroads of trade and merchants. So it was filled all the time with traveling sailors. That tells you everything you need to know about the character of the city. Amen, John? This was a place that was known for idolatry, sinfulness, so much so, so much so that in the ancient world, they actually used the name of the city of Corinth to describe any kind of inappropriate sexual activity. In other words, in Paul's day, people didn't Netflix and chill, people Corinthianized. That's how sinful this sin city was. And yet the will of God sent Paul to the city of Corinth. And for 18 months, the Apostle Paul invaded Sin City with the message of redemption and salvation in Christ Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, the grace of God started interrupting the lives of these sinners too. And God starts to build a little colony of saints that became this church of Corinth that we're going to deal with over the next few months. This was an important city. It was an impressive city. And it was a city where people thought they were important. It was a city where people thought they were impressive. The city of Corinth. There's not going to be a test on this later. But the city of Corinth was destroyed in 146 B.C. And it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., right before he, thanks to Brutus and those guys. And the city of Corinth, after it was rebuilt under Julius Caesar, it, 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 just, it was like a magic city. It just grew up overnight into this major metropolitan hub, this center of commerce and industry. And everybody in the ancient world that not only was Corinth, knew that not only was Corinth the kind of place you could go to have a good time, but it was also the kind of place where you could go to become somebody. And if you could work hard, and you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and if you had the right idea at the right time, and if you put enough muscle and sweat equity into it, then you could become somebody in the city of Corinth. And so the city of Corinth was filled with people who were really impressed with themselves. And even though this city was filled with all kinds of temples to ancient gods and goddesses and idols, the ever-present idol that everyone in Corinth worshipped was the god of self. Self had to be the center of attention. I have to matter. I have to be seen. I have to be the object of everyone else's of everyone else's applause. I have to be the focus while all of my legions of adoring fans shower me with their adulation. And it's not that different from the world you live in today. Where everybody thinks they should be the center of attention all the time. Where every individual thinks that the entire culture should bow to their will and bow to their desire and bow to their wants and bow to their needs. And I don't think that in the church we've probably really put enough mental energy into thinking through how we've brought that into this place. We really don't see how much of out there has become in here. This is a problem in Corinth because everybody in the center of Corinth wanted to be, or the city of Corinth wanted to be the center of attention at church. And Paul's going to write to them. You'll see this over and over again and say, this is not about you. It's about him. But how often do you and I want to use the church as a platform for our own self-promotion so that we can be seen and so that we can be known? And that's what was happening in the city of Corinth and in the church of Corinth. But y'all... It gets much, much worse. 
You keep reading the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth, and you'll find out these people, they were just gross. They were just gross. They were divided. They were hostile to one another. They were mean to each other. They had such division in the church that you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that they were actually suing one another and taking one another to court over their grievances. You get into 1 Corinthians 6, you find out they've got all kinds of sexual sin. And it just keeps going and going until 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. You find out that there were people in the church that were actually getting drunk at communion. Now, you may have never been in a church service before in your life. And if you haven't, man, we're glad you're here. But I hope that you know that getting drunk at church, that's bad. God's against it. It's real bad. But this is, this is the kind of church they had. It is the Wild West. It is chaos in this church. And Paul writes to this church to help address the chaos. But with their sexual immorality, with their baggage, with their drunkenness, there are people in the church that are worshiping idols with their idolatry. Paul says in verse number 2, he does something remarkable. He exposes to them the true reality about their spiritual condition. When he says that they are, verse 2, the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. This is a church full of sinners. But Paul says you are the church of God and you are the saints of God. Now the word church is an important word. Unfortunately, it's one of those English words that we've used, misused, and, and abused so much that it just doesn't mean anything. Our, our English word church, I believe, and we do have an actual bona fide German with us today, and so he can check my math, but I believe the, German, or the English word for church comes from the German word Kirche, and it means a religious place or a, a building. But Paul's not talking about a building in the church of Corinth. Paul's talking about a people. A church is a called-out assembly. Paul says, you, with all of your sin, all your mess, all your junk, you are the people of God. You are the people who have been called out of your sin by God. You are the people whose lives have been rewritten by the grace of God. You are the people who meet to worship God. You are the saints, the set-apart people of God. As amazing as the word church is, I'm really amazed by the word saint. Really hung up on this because Paul uses it twice there in verse number 2. A little bit different way, but he says they are sanctified and they are called to be saints. Now, if you're diligently taking notes this morning, the word sanctify and the word saint, it's the same word. So much so that the word sanctify could literally be sanctify. And it's a word that talks about holiness. It's a word that, that really means to, to be set apart to God. There's a guy in the church of Corinth that is so sinful, he's having an affair with his stepmom. And instead of calling this guy on this Jerry Springer level of sin, the church of Corinth, they celebrate it. Because they say, well, look how loving we are. Look how accepting and look how tolerant. So that's the kind of church you're dealing with here. And then Paul comes to them and says, look at you saints of God. Does that make any sense to you? I've got books in my office about actual saints. 
people like St. Anthony who went out in the desert and, and only ate like one loaf of bread for 40 years and prayed for people 20 hours a day and did miracles. Like, that guy's a real saint. Mother Teresa is a real saint. These people ain't. These people are sinners. These people have... These people need some antibiotics and a doctor. These people are messy and broken and screwed up. They cannot be saints while they are sinners. Unless God says they are. Unless God comes to them right in the middle of their sin and says, in spite of your sin, I declare you to be a saint of God. And this idea puts forward one of the most central truths in all of the Scripture that God declares people righteous while they are still unrighteous. Do you believe that today? Man, you ought to thank God for that truth. That God does not look at us and say, as soon as you become a saint, then I'll let you be a saint. But God says, even while you're a sinner, I will say you are a saint. And listen to me today, friends. That means for you today that if you are not a believer in Jesus, that right now the offer God makes to you is nothing less than sainthood. He says you do not have to carry the title of your sin. You do not have to carry the shame and the guilt of what you used to be and what you used to do. God says that if you will believe in Jesus, you can leave here a bona fide, newly minted saint today. But it also means today, if you have believed in Jesus, listen to me now. If you have believed in Jesus, God says you are a saint. They might not ever, they might not ever build a statue to you in Rome. They might not ever give you a feast day on the calendar. But God says you are a saint. And if the God of heaven says you are a saint, then don't worry about what your mind says to you. Don't worry about what your memory says to you. Definitely don't worry about what the devil says to you. And y'all, even if every angel in heaven were to descend down here today and say, you are a sinner, the God who made those angels says in Christ, you are a saint as sinful as you might be. Paul says, I look at this church and I see a place where there are saints and sinners. Now, that's important in the life of a church. Because that means our church is a church of saints and sinners. Sinners who are saints and saints who are sinners. And so some of you today are, are at church today and, and people getting on your nerves. Little conflicts about stuff that really matters, you know. Petty disagreements. Somebody didn't talk to you. Somebody looked at you and you didn't like the way they looked at you. Of course. Those people are sinners. You know that, right? We come to church with sinners. But God has put you here as a saint to show the gospel to all of those sinners who need to be redeemed. And guess what? You are here today as a sinner in a company of saints. And all of these saints around you are communicating the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ to you so that when you sin, you can be forgiven. So that when your attitude isn't right, you can be restored. So that when you fall, you can be picked back up again. The church is a place for saints and sinners. And so it's no wonder that in verse number 4, Paul's so grateful for the church. He says there in verse number 4, I give thanks to God for you all the time. Now that may not seem unusual to you, but once we get further in the book of 1 Corinthians... This is going to seem really out of balance 
Because these people, they, they tarnished Paul's reputation all the time. These people, they treated Paul terribly. He was the butt of their jokes. Disrespected him and mocked him. Paul says, I'm so thankful for you. Why? Because in that body of people, as imperfect as they were, that was where the grace of God was breaking in on the world. That is where God was doing His work. Where is God at work in the world right now? We could say in some general sense, God is at work in every part of the world. He's at work in creation. He's holding it all together. He's certainly at work in history as it moves towards the future so that the world will become exactly what God has designed it to be. But if you want to know where God is really working today, look around at all these saints and sinners in this place. This is where God is doing His work today. In fact, I don't want to belabor this point, but it's so significant because we can't see it, we can't feel it, and we don't get it. How many of you believe today that when you were saved, you were saved for good and forever in that moment? Amen. Thank God. But how many of you also recognize that you are being saved right now? You're being sanctified. God's still cleaning you up. That's why they taught you in Sunday school. He's still working on me. Because he's got a lot of work to do on some of us, right? We're being sanctified. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Father, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. God sanctifies his people. He makes them holy through the work of the word. And so do you realize what's happening right now at 10 to 12 in a Baptist church in Brookside, Alabama, while the word of God is being preached? Do you realize what's happening? God is saving his people. Right now, the same God who saved the Israelites by bringing them out of Egypt with his outstretched arm and walked them through the Red Sea on dry ground, that God is at work in these sinners around you and he's saving them this instant. Paul says, man, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God is saving these sinners and making them into saints. We should be thankful. We should take Paul's cue here. We should be thankful for our church. We should be thankful for the church. A lot of us are are more comfortable expressing complaints and criticisms of the church than we are offering up gratitude for the church. But you do know today that whether it was this church or some other church or even just an individual believer, it really is true that when the gospel came to you, it came through the church. It came through the people of God in some way. Even if you were alone somewhere reading the Bible, it was the people of God, the church, that has communicated truth through the inspiration of the Spirit. When you've been so disheartened, discouraged, alone, and defeated, many of us can look back and say that it was the church that picked up the phone and called us. It was the church that wrapped their arms around us. There have been times when it's been the church that made sure we had enough to eat and made sure that the light stayed on. It's been the church that loved us when we were backslid as 40 devils. It's been the church that's taken care of us. And it's been the church that welcomed us and was there for us. Friends, we should be thankful to God for His work in these sinners around us. Because we get to see these saints of God ministering to us. So Paul says, I'm thankful because of grace. That has been given to you, given to you. And the grace in verse 5 is that in every way you have been enriched in Him. As His grace, as God has bankrupt heaven to give you Jesus, you see people around you being made rich in Christ. Paul said, Man, I'm thankful to be around such wealthy people, enriched in all speech, 
and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Paul connects the testimony about Christ, which I take to be his preaching of the gospel, what he had told them about Jesus. Their faith confirmed this message. They believed in Jesus. Their lives were transformed. And they were living proof that Jesus is alive and that he resurrects sinners to give them new life. I love that idea because what Paul says here is this. Paul says that the church is grace made visible. The church is the gospel come to life in the world. He'll say that later in the book when he says that the church is the body of Christ in chapter number 12. That this is Christ present in the world. The people united with him that are making grace visible. God's grace proclaimed in the gospel springs into something you can see in the lives of these sinners around you. You realize that, right? And you look around at these sinners and these saints that are sitting in these seats today. And you can see the grace of God at work in their lives. In big ways. In small ways. It's no wonder that Paul is so thankful for his church body. Because those sinners, when they lift up their voices and sing a moment ago. About how on that first Easter Sunday morning, the grave was empty and the line of Judah roared again. Hey, that gives proof to the claim that Jesus is alive. Because these saints and these sinners that are sitting here around you, that are being turned into new creations by the God who made this creation, that is proof that this God is moving this old fallen creation into a new creation that is good and perfect and right. The claim that Jesus is Lord, folks, we give evidence to that claim in the way we worship. And in the way that we live, this group of saints and sinners, this is a group of people that are giving evidence to the testimony that Jesus is alive. But Paul goes even further in verse number 7. And he says that as they have been enriched in Jesus, they are not lacking in any gift. There's a part of me that thinks the Apostle Paul may be being sarcastic for the glory of God. You hang with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 14, you'll see why. But you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds the church of something we can't forget. And that is that the church of Jesus Christ, we are a future tense people. We are people who are waiting to become the saints we already are. We are a group of sinners and a group of saints all at the same time just waiting to catch up to ourselves in heaven. That's what we are. And Paul says, as you wait... For the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, He will sustain you to the end. So that you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now y'all remind me, I did tell you that when sinners believe in Jesus, at that moment they become saints, right? Even though they haven't quit sinning. Even though they had not gotten any better. Even though they're not... Maybe trying any harder. The moment they put their faith in Jesus, they are declared saints. I told y'all that, right? Good. Well, those saints are guiltless before the throne of God. Now, I, I hadn't planned on telling you this, but I think it's so cool. I've got to tell you, if you allow me just like two minutes. When somebody becomes a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, that can't happen until they're dead, first of all. 
And usually it's a long period of time, and there's all kinds of criteria they have to meet. They don't just let anybody become a saint. Sorry. But you never would make it, all right? I mean, they have like real bona fide saints. St. George killed dragons, okay? What have you done, all right? So when you become a saint, you have to be a good person or, or really beyond a good person. You have to do a handful of miracles that can be somehow verified. But one of the weirdest, I think, neatest things that the Roman church does is they will appoint, the Vatican will appoint a priest to the case of the prospective saint. And this guy's title in Latin is the Diabolus Avocatus, which means the devil's advocate. And so what this priest does is he works for the devil. It's not a good look, but he works for the devil to find any dirt on the saint. To make sure that there's no skeletons in the closet. To make sure that there's nothing that would disqualify the prospective saint from becoming a saint. So he does the devil's dirty work for him. To make sure that there's nothing that could ever tarnish the name of this future saint. Now Paul didn't know about any of that Roman Catholic stuff. But I think he would say to us today. Let all the devil's lawyers dig as deep as they want. Every bit of our sin and every bit of our junk is under the blood of Jesus and they'll never find it. It doesn't matter what accusation they level, it'll never stick because Christ made an end to every bit of it at His cross. It does not matter what we are accused of by Him or by anyone else. On the last day, child of God, you will be presented blameless. We, as the people of God, will be presented guiltless. We will be presented as a faultless bride before the Lord Jesus Christ, walking down the aisle radiant in white, without any scar, without any wrinkle, without any blemish. We will be presented guiltless. And the one who is faithful, Paul says, the one who is faithful, he will do it. Now, this is the part that I really like. Because Paul, in verse 8, moving into verse number 9, Paul talks about the faithfulness of God to his church. Now, remember, Paul said... Back in verse number 2, they were the church of God. This is His church. He's going to make this point over and over again. It's not your church, it's His church. But because it's His church, He is ruthlessly committed to these people. God is faithful. The future of the church of Jesus Christ is not written by either saints at their best or sinners at their worst. The future of the church of Jesus Christ is written by the faithful God who will never fail His people, who will never walk out on them, who will never quit on them, but who said, I am with you all the way to the end. Who said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Listen, He's with His people. He's united to His people, and He will be with them. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you is this. God is not a Baptist. Say, what do you mean? I know Jesus was a Baptist, baptized by immersion as an adult. I got that. God the Father is not a Baptist. At least, He don't treat the church the way Baptists treat the church. Well, I'm getting ready to preach now. Y'all better hang on. God does not leave the church without telling anybody where He went. God doesn't just get His feelings hurt and say, Well, if that's all it's going to be, then I'm not going to be a part of it. God doesn't disappear for months at a time. God is faithful. He's stuck. By choice. And he says, I'm with those people. 
I'm for them and I will work to preserve them. And it is the faithfulness of God to His people that is writing the story of the future of the church. This church in Corinth is a wild, screwed up mess. You would never go to this church. I would never pastor this church. We would never want to be connected with this church at all. But God said, I'll take them. And isn't that just like God? To go down to people at their worst and at their lowest and say, this feels right. Let me make something of these people. And we better worship Him for that because that's what He does for us too. That's what He's doing in our church. Comes to people as sinful as they are and says, they're my people. They're my people. Called, saved, sanctified, preserved by the faithfulness of God. He says in verse number 9, and I'll finish here. Called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Called to fellowship with Jesus. What is the church? If you want a definition, the church is not this building that sits at 520 Bivens Brookside Road, Birmingham, Alabama. The church is not the schedule of services that we offer. The church is the group of people in fellowship with Jesus. It is the community of people who are invited into Him. Communing with Him and communing with those that are in community with Christ by grace through faith. Remember when you were in Sunday school and they taught you this little thing? Here's a church. Here's a steeple. Open it up and see all the people. They were wrong. That ain't the church. That's the church. It's the people in fellowship with Jesus. You know why that matters for us today? That matters for us today because if you are in fellowship with Jesus, you are not in fellowship with Jesus by yourself. There's other people in fellowship with Jesus. You can't be in fellowship with Jesus and not be in fellowship with the people who are in fellowship with Jesus. This is going to be a huge issue for Paul. Our vital union with Christ and the unity we should have with one another as the people that are united with Him. As I've thought about this message over the past few weeks in this text, um, I just, just wondered what would happen if we really laid hold of these great truths that Paul places before us in these verses. This is just the introduction to the letter. This is just right here at the beginning. This is, he's not even trying yet. This is the good stuff. man. But what would happen if this became part of the DNA in our church body to believe that the church really is a place for saints and sinners? I think some of us would be, you know, a lot more interested, a lot more committed to see the work of God here. Let me ask you this question. All my life I've heard preachers say this. The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. You ever heard that? Can I just be honest with you today? I'm starting to think that may not be as right as they said. The church is both a hospital for sinners and a museum for saints. And those sinners, those sinners that are being rescued, that are being healed, those are the same saints that are on display. And what happens when we believe that? And we believe that God really is saving people all around us. That all around us today are all these people caught up in the saving purposes of God. All around us are people that are actually in fellowship with Jesus. And we should be in fellowship with Him. I think that would help us to see that there is no such thing as church people. Sharon Heights, 
If God really declares sinners to be saints while they are still sinners, by His grace and not their effort, if God really does that, then there's no such thing as people that are qualified or fit or look the part. But that the church should be the people that recognize first that nobody is beyond the grace of God. And we should recognize that our church body is a church for poor people, rich people, ugly people, normal people, weird people, handsome people, whatever people, black people, white trashy people. Because God makes saints out of all kinds of sinners. We should recognize today that there's no such thing as this entrance exam into the church. Jesus and His grace, that's how you get in. And that grace always comes to the lowest point. As we finish up today, um, Brother Gary, you go ahead and come play and our musicians can come be getting ready. As we prepare for an invitation today, what most of us need is just an elevated perspective on the church. We need to recognize that it is a place for saints and sinners. And for many of you today, that may look like coming to the Lord and saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to help me to become what I am. Say, Brother Jesse, that doesn't make any sense. I think it does from Scripture's perspective. You are a saint of God. You are a saint of God. And you need God to help you become what you are. To be living as a trophy and a treasure of His grace. Some of you in the church today, I'm going to ask you to do something different for our invitation. Instead of coming to this altar and praying or just standing there, I want you to go to somebody in your church body and just say, you have been a saint to me. You have shown me the grace of God walking around in this world. And I just want you to know that God has used you in my life. Then there are some of you that are here today in church, but really you're not in the church because you're not in Christ. My invitation to you today, the Bible's invitation, Jesus' own invitation to you today is to come as a sinner and leave a saint. Come bring your sin, bring your problems, whatever they are, your guilt, whatever it is, and say, Jesus, this is the only case I can make for sainthood. And when you present your sin to him, he will present grace to you. In fact, he said, I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. He came for people just like you and you can become a saint today let's stand together and let's sing however you need to respond today a good time a good time to come together as a church today